This, however, is the season of celebration of the life and the legacy of the late Dr. Martin Luther King. Racial justice, economic equity, world peace, these were the themes which consumed his life and for which we honor him in memory. These questions haunt us as much now as when King lived. They are, in fact, as old as our nation and as new as today. We are just short hours away from catastrophic war in the Persian Gulf. The stock market opened in 1991 at its second lowest level in history. And race, of course, remains a primary factor in determining how long some Americans will live, how much they will earn and learn, and how soon their children will die. In less than nine years now, we will see what few Americans living now have ever seen, the birth of a new century and the death of an old. Let us look backward quickly over these 90 years. At the beginning of the 20th century, the late W.E.B. Du Bois put down on paper a program the embryonic movement for civil rights ought to try to pursue. We must complain, he said, Yes, plain, blunt complaint, ceaseless agitation, unfailing exposure of dishonesty and wrong. This is the ancient, unerring way to liberty, and we must follow it. Next, he said, we propose to work. These are the things which black men and women must try to do. We must press the matter of stopping the curtailment of our political rights. We must urge Negroes to vote honestly and effectively. We must push the matter of civil rights. We must organize business cooperation. We must build schoolhouses and increase the interest in education. We must bring Negroes and labor unions into mutual understanding. We must study Negro history. And we must attack crime among us to do all in our power by word and by deed to increase the efficiency of our race, the enjoyment of its manhood rights, the performance of its just duties. This is a large program, Dr. Du Bois said. It cannot be realized in a short time, but now is the critical time. Well, sadly, what was true for him in 1905 remains true for us today. From before his time until today, black Americans have generally followed his prescription for action, pursuing civil rights, economic justice, entrance into the mainstream of American life. The years since then saw gains won at lunch counters, at movie theaters, at bus stations, at polling places, and saw the fabric of legal segregation come undone. What had begun as a movement for elemental civil rights is today largely a political and an economic movement, and black men and women hold office and wield power in numbers we only dreamed of before. But despite impressive increases in the number of black people holding public office, despite our ability to sit and eat and ride and vote and go to school in places which used to bar black faces, in a very real way in 1991, non-white Americans are worse off than in the years that went before. Two years ago, when the final phase of the 1988 presidential campaign had formally begun, both George Bush and Michael Dukakis saw an America many Americans never see. For these two men, America was a land of happy families and successful suburbs where every child waves an American flag, where every day is the 4th of July. But there was then and is now another America, a shadow America neither candidate dared to show or tell. The eight years that had gone before had been a festive party thrown for America's rich. The middle class got by on two paychecks. Median family income was stagnant. The percentage of young families who owned their own homes went down for the first time since the Depression. Savings and investment were down. 
Despite low numbers of Americans unemployed, the percentage living in poverty remained the same. In 1987, the richest two-fifths of American families received the highest percentage of the national family income ever recorded, and the lowest two-fifths received their smallest share since 1947. And for those Americans whose skins are black or brown, the rate of poverty went up while median family income went down. For children of any color, the numbers living in poverty doubled by the end of the 80s. Poverty for black and Hispanic senior citizens went up, children who were poor got poorer, the gap between rich and poor grew wider. After 20 years in decline, the infant mortality rate for blacks went up. For all these families, it wasn't mourning in America. The only shining points of light they saw were daylight through the cracks in their walls. Permit me to speak as we go along with two voices. First, as a contemporary fellow passenger, on what promises to be a tough and frustrating trip from the present toward the 21st century, and secondly, as a witness and participant to an earlier leg of that journey, a trip whose stops will include Selma and Saigon, both Jackson and Johannesburg, a trip which will take us from Ole Miss to UMass, from Bull Connor's dogs to Ronald Reagan's judges, from the Ku Klux Klan to neo-Nazis and the Posse Comitatus, from Brown versus the Board of Education to Ward's Cove Packing Company versus Antonio, from James Earl Ray and Bernard Goetz to David Duke, from bombs in Birmingham to bigotry in Boston to bombs in Birmingham once again. In many ways, the Southern freedom movement of yesterday was a second reconstruction whose ripples were felt far beyond the Southern states and whose victories benefited far more than blacks. Like the first Reconstruction, almost exactly 100 years before, it focused on making the civil rights protections of America's half-citizens more secure. Like the first Reconstruction, it saw gains for blacks extended to protections for others. Like the first Reconstruction, it gave new life to movements of other disadvantaged Americans. And like the first Reconstruction, the second ended when the national purpose wavered and reaction swept the land. But before it ended, it was our democracy's finest hour. A voteless people voted with their bodies and their feet and showed the way for other social protest. The anti-war movement drew its earliest soldiers from the Southern Freedom Army. The reborn movement for women's rights took many of its cues and much of its momentum from the Southern movement for civil rights. These three impediments to our democracy's success, gender, race, and abuse of power, all were weakened by the movement's drive, and we are all better for it today. An important first step in this movement came in the summer of 1954. In April of that year, a young minister born Michael Luther King preached his first sermon as pastor of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery. He was 25 years old. He could not have known that in nine years he would be the most famous black American, speaking at the March on Washington to the largest gathering of civil rights supporters in American history. And he could not have known that in 14 years he would be dead. Ten days after that first sermon, the French forces in a faraway garrison called Dien Bien Phu were overcome. None of us imagined then that 55,000 American men would lose their lives in Vietnam. Ten days after the French fell in Southeast Asia, legal segregation fell here at home. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled that segregated public schools were against the law. The court's ruling destroyed segregation's legality and an army of nonviolent protesters quickly arose to challenge its morality as well. Now the Southern movement for civil rights, like the war in Vietnam, showed Americans at our best and our worst. At our best, we were and are a caring people, heroic and brave. At our worst, we were and are a narrow and a selfish people, devoted to skin privilege, 
to economic advantage for only a few. But here at home in the American South, a decades-long struggle against great odds won real victories, not just for Southern blacks, but for American ideals as well. A year and a half after Martin Luther King arrived in Montgomery, a black woman was arrested for refusing to give up her seat to a white man on a city bus. A year and five days after Rosa Parks was arrested, a young lawyer named Nelson Mandela was arrested in Johannesburg. Rosa Parks' arrest in Montgomery triggered a year-long bus boycott. It broke the back of segregation in Montgomery, and the inspiration of the Montgomery movement set nonviolent fires in towns and cities across the South. In 1960, college students adopted the Montgomery technique of nonviolent resistance, and thousands began accepting jail without bail by sitting down to stand up for their rights. The next year, they attacked segregated interstate travel with their bodies and segregated ballot boxes throughout the South as well. There were lives lost along the way, and laws passed, and by 1965, Jim Crow was legally dead. The 57 and 64 Civil Rights Acts, the 65 Voting Rights Act, gave black Americans federal protection for rights most other Americans already enjoyed. Today we see a very different picture, a population largely indifferent to the poverty around them, a people more concerned about trapped whales in Alaska than babies trapped in poverty in Alabama. After the great successes of the 1960s, the movement for civil rights began to falter in the 1970s and has been in stages of advance and retreat ever since. But the current sinister threat to civil rights comes not from Southern sheriffs or bombs, but from the White House and the Department of Justice itself. Until 1981, the department had a credible record as a vigorous opponent of discrimination. Under Republican and Democratic presidents alike, they won decisions prohibiting overt discrimination and others that banned practices that perpetuated the effect of discrimination in the past. But beginning in 1981, they discovered a heretofore unknown protected class, white men, and directed their efforts toward protecting the benefits of this beleaguered and helpless group. They made dangerous, precipitous, and radical shifts toward contravening the Constitution and the law of the land. The ultimate result of this policy was contempt for the rule of law itself. Had they prevailed, our constitutional rights would have been protected only when they are popularly agreed to or when a person who supports them is elected President of the United States. For the past and present administrations, the Constitution is a document of infinite elasticity to be tailored and snipped to fit the passions of the moment. The human cost of these actions is beyond measure. When the government becomes the aggressor against the civil rights of its own people, it becomes the promoter of prejudice and makes common cause with the stain of white supremacy that has persisted throughout our history. But despite this dreary record, there were successes, and the bipartisan congressional majority on civil rights remained intact. A second front against racial justice was opened in the 1980s and has gained strength ever since. Led by scholars and academicians, funded by corporate America, this movement of neoconservatives aimed its effort at removing government regulation from every aspect of our lives and found a handy, hated target in civil rights. While professing strong support for equal rights, these neo-Bourbons opposed every tool designed to achieve that goal. They discredited affirmative action, not only because it threatened ancient skin privilege, but because it served as an easy symbol of despised government intervention. For these new racists, equal opportunity is a burden society cannot afford to bear. Their less than subtle message is that including blacks and women excludes quality. The truth is that true equality requires an increase in unwanted competition 
These new states' writers cannot stand. Their old boy networks in academia or in industry cannot tolerate federal imposition of equal rights. They argue that the civil rights laws of the 1960s eliminated all discrimination, that the playing field is now level, that every contestant stands equal at the starting line, that some contestants have no shoes, that others find their legs gripped by heavy baggage from the past, that an advantage few begin the race at the finish line is of no consequence to these champions of the new order. Today's movement suffers not from its imagined excesses, but from the lies and distortions of its opponents. They tell us discrimination against minorities is not a problem. Society must protect itself from discrimination against the majority instead. They tell us school teachers and unemployed mothers are special interest. They tell us civil rights remedies produce civil wrongs. They tell us class, not race, produces racial inequity. That culture, not color, separate black from white. They reject the intergenerational effects of racism as a cause of disadvantage. Discrimination is dead, they say, and cannot be at fault but blacks will suffer disadvantage as long as they exhibit discrimination's badges. When the topic is black unemployment rates, twice those for whites, past and present bias plays no role. But when the subject is welfare burdens or other so-called pathologies, these neo-segregationists never tire of listing the cumulative effects of our racist past. The last item on the civil rights agenda economic justice, remains unfulfilled and unaddressed. Martin Luther King lost his life in 1968, supporting a garbage worker strike in Memphis. The right to decent work at decent pay is as important as the right to vote. Negroes, King said in 61, are almost entirely a working people. There are pitifully few Negro millionaires and few Negro employers. That there are more black millionaires today is a tribute to the movement King led. That there are proportionately fewer blacks working today is an indictment of our time and our economic system, a reminder of our failure to keep the movement coming on. The first two years of the kinder, gentler administration only remind us how much things remain the same. The president began by choosing as the nation's chief civil rights lawyer a man most Americans would not choose to represent them in people's court. <laughs> he continues a performance that is loud in rhetoric but lacks execution through his dis dismaying attitude toward the Civil Rights Act of 1990. President Bush said he opposed it because it would require quotas. The real issue isn't quotas but quotients, the intelligence quotient of the president and his advisors. If the 1990s promise expanded freedoms in Eastern Europe and Southern Africa, we have a right to ask what we may expect here at home. We were right to celebrate the death of totalitarianism overseas, but the early warning signs of collapse here at home mean we cannot crown capitalism king just yet. Twice before in the 20th century, we saw the private economy unable to cope with the challenges that it faced. Six decades ago, we embraced an aggressive interventionist government when the private economy proved unable to beat back the depression and to put wages into people's pockets once again. We embraced an activist government again in the late 50s and the early 1960s when it became clear there would be no private sector or state-level commitment to ending racial segregation without the intervention of the federal government. And by 1960, it had become clear that the capitalist system had failed to moderate or restrain the privation which affected one in every five Americans just three decades ago. Government's efforts worked then. They reduced poverty by more than half. They relieved some of poverty's grimmest conditions, malnutrition, poor housing, ill health. They provided successful job training, 
raising the economic level of thousands of Americans. They provided early education for low-income children, increasing their chances for success in life. They increased visits by the poor to doctors, and they cut our substandard housing stock in half. But the message we hear now from Congress and the White House is not encouraging. The President's first budget continued the reverse Robin Hood traditions of the Reagan years, squeezing the needy to fatten the greedy. The Democrats have nearly forgotten how to be in opposition. They can read the President's lips, but seem unable to form words or programs of their own. There is no courage on Capitol Hill. Coalitions of the comfortable have replaced the notion that our society could be organized in a kinder, gentler way. Today, non-white Americans face conditions as daunting as the fire hoses and billy clubs of 30 years ago. An Urban League report tells us that blacks lost, not gained ground in the 1980s. And on the streets and sidewalks where black America lives, crime and violence rule. Homicide is the leading cause of death for 15 to 34-year-old black men and women, and 95% of these murders are black-on-black -black crimes. These are not drive-by shootings or strangers killing strangers. In most of these deaths, the killer and victim knew each other. In life chances, life expectancy, years of education completed, median income, all the standards by which life is measured Black Americans see a deep and widening gulf between the American dream and the reality of their lives. For the past decade, an often indifferent and sometimes hostile federal government helped to widen that gap. Today, the neo-segregationist majority on the Supreme Court denies minorities and women relief in the federal courts. Court decisions and presidential indifference send a signal to the rest of America, to business, to labor, and to education. But we ought to remember that Martin Luther King didn't march from Selma to Montgomery by himself. He didn't speak to an empty field at the March on Washington. There were thousands marching with him and before him, and thousands more who one by one and two by two did the dirty work that preceded the triumphal march. Black Americans didn't just march to freedom. They worked their way towards civil rights through the difficult business of organizing, knocking on doors one by one, registering voters one by one, developing a community effort block by block, creating an effective organization town by town. Today we look to others to lead and direct us. Yesterday we told the people where the people were, what the people wanted the leaders to do. There is an enormous opportunity for service available to each of us, wherever and whoever we may happen to be. From the Girl Scouts to the Boys Clubs and the PTA and the local political club, from the NAACP to congressional campaigns, there's nowhere willing hands and minds aren't welcome. Nowhere they will be turned away. Most of us here will be successful in our lives. Many went before us to smooth our way, and our job is to smooth the way for those who come behind. Building such a movement is a difficult but not impossible task. Surely each of us wants to have a say in deciding our common fate. There could be no better prescription for relieving this current crisis and for reviving some interest in it than by recreating that old nonpartisan national coalition of need of parents who want care, not warehousing for their children, of workers who want work at a decent and protected wage, of people who work for their living but can't live on what they make, as well as those who can't find work but can't live on what we so grudgingly give, of all those who want an end to welfare and capitalism for the poor and subsidy and socialism for the wealthy, and who must learn that sufficiency for those at the bottom is compatible with stability for those in the middle, all these people now live in America divided by race and class, fearful of each other, contentious and impotent. A major political movement came to near maturity in the United States in the 1960s, fueled by the fire from the Southern Civil Rights Movement and the National Anti-War Drive, 
drawing its leadership from the grassroots, it threatened to challenge the foundations of racial and economic arrogance that has created vast reservations of the unwanted on our country's soil. That movement became the partial victim of its own success. It fought for and won the right to sit in the front of the bus, to cast a vote, to sit at a lunch counter. It launched a Southern black political movement, but it failed to sustain and extend itself and instead saw itself dissipated by struggles on the edge. During the decade of the 1960s, this great social movement fought to win a place at the table for those citizens previously consigned to eating in the kitchen, if indeed they ate at all. Now that the legal and extra-legal barriers have been largely removed, the battle for the remainder of the 20th century is to close this widening gap. None of us should have much difficulty envisioning the world we want or the programs which, if adopted, would ring the new dawn in. We want a society whose single aim is the democratic satisfaction of the needs of its people. We want to guarantee all Americans an equal opportunity to participate in the organization of their society, in the shaping of public and private decisions which affect their lives. We want to guarantee that no one goes without the basic necessities, food, shelter, health care, a healthy environment, personal safety, and adequate income. Instead, the hopes and dreams of generations, that each succeeding year would be the year in which the land of the slave finally became the home of the free, have been set aside in favor of defense spending, balanced budgets, corporate domination of the economy. What we need be about today, and for many, many years to come, is a version of politics which cannot be labeled by the old terms. If there is an opening for an American era of politics different from the past, then it must be a citizen's democracy, insurgent but with its focus aimed seriously at power. When I speak here of democratic, I do not mean the political party I belong to, but rather the system of equally distributing wealth and power in an organized society through institutions based on the premise that we all have equal ability and equal right to make decisions about our lives and our future. This will require the creation of a large cadre with the strategy, skill, and vision to build a democratic movement in the mainstream, a reassertion of the plain truth that ordinary women and men have the common sense and ability to control their lives, given the knowledge and the means. The instruments involved in building such a movement are more than electoral races, as important as they must be. The lesson we ought to have learned from the 60s is this. Mass movement must have an organized base. Without organizations that are stable, continuous, and mass-based, the movements that do emerge eventually flounder and decay. The 60s, in retrospect, were a series of mass mobilizations winning some impressive victories and inspiring great expectations, but ultimately unable to sustain a living democracy at our society's base. We must develop a political program broad enough to attract a large section of the population, real enough to have some expectation of implementation, human enough to solve the problems which most Americans share in some measure. In community after community around the country, one can see the beginnings of such a movement. Its practitioners are many, its focus diverse, but there seems to be a common thread throughout that small changes can become large ones. For too many Americans, civil rights is a kind of spectator sport, a kind of NBA in which all the players are black and all the spectators are white. But in this true-to-life game, the players are of every color and condition the fate of all the fans tied to points scored on the floor. When either team wins, the spectators win too. When four little girls died in a Birmingham church bombing, Sally Ride won the right to shoot the moon. Because black young people faced arrest at Southern lunch counters 30 years ago, the law their bodies wrote now protects older Americans from age discrimination, protects Jews and Muslims and Christians from religious bigotry protects the disabled from exclusion because of their condition. When the struggle for civil rights began to intensify three decades ago, we knew it would be hard fought and never cost free. But we hoped the American people would bear the burden and pay the price. And for a while, they answered, we will. 
Again, Du Bois speaks to us from the past. He said at the turn of the 20th century, I believe in God who made of one blood all the nations that dwell on the earth. <clears throat> I believe we all, black, brown, white, our brothers, varying through time and opportunity, in form and gift and feature, but differing in no essential particular, alike in soul and in the possibility of infinite development. I believe in service, humble, reverent service, from the blackening of boots to the whitening of souls. For work is heaven, idleness hell, and wages the well done of the master that summoned all them that labor and to heavy laden making no distinction between the black sweating cotton hands of Georgia and the first families of Virginia, since all distinction not based on deed is devilish and not divine. I believe in the Prince of Peace. I believe that war is murder. I believe that armies and navies are at bottom the tinsel and braggadocio of oppression and wrong. And I believe that the wicked conquest of weaker and darker nations by nations white and stronger but foreshadows the death of their strength. I believe in liberty for us all, the space to stretch our arms and our souls, the right to breathe, the right to vote, the freedom to choose our friends, to enjoy the sunshine, to ride on the railroad uncursed by color, thinking, hoping, dreaming, working as we will in a kingdom of God and love. Thank you. Uh, the questioner says that in the Twin Cities there are plans to open a school that only African-American students can attend and wants to know what do I think about this approach to education. Well, this approach has been tried and failed. It was tried uh, and was legal in most of the United States until 1954 and the Supreme Court said it was legal and uh, it persisted nonetheless strongly uh, throughout uh, many of the states, not just in the South. In fact, there are schools today in most American cities that only African-Americans attend. And uh, the African-Americans who attend many of these schools do quite poorly. There's a plan in Milwaukee that I'm a little familiar with, which is to have a school which will enroll young men and to have most of the teachers men. The theory being that these young men are at risk, and they certainly are, and they badly need male role models, and since the teacher force, I guess, is overwhelmingly female, it'd be good to have men in the classroom, these authority figures to straighten Junior out. Uh, and these schools will probably be an enormous success because they will receive enormous amounts of money, much more so than the run-of-the-mill public school. Their teachers will be specially trained and screened. They will be the cream of the crop. The community will watch these schools in a way that we don't watch most schools our children attend. The PTA meetings will be packed with eager parents wondering, is Johnny learning how to read and how's Johnny doing and so forth and so on. So these will probably be great success. And then the lesson will be learned that, aha, it works so well in Milwaukee, let's do it elsewhere. I think it's an awful mistake. I think it's a big mistake. And I think it's admitting that the public schools have failed to educate our children and we're not willing to do in them what we need to do to make sure that they do. And what we need to do is several things. We need to spend more money on them, on the education of all our children, to pay the teachers more than they're paid, to insist on a higher standard of behavior from students, teachers, faculty, administrators, and mom and dad. Uh, and unless we're willing to make that kind of commitment, these little experiments may have momentary and temporary successes, but uh, I don't think they're the answer to the problem of the miseducation of black young people. The question asks, what do I think about Shelby Steele, who is a uh, professor at San Diego State University who's written a book called The Content of Our Character, in which he discourses on a variety of subjects and makes this argument that affirmative action has a negative effect on blacks and whites. Uh, the bad effect it has on whites is that whites see a black person uh, in some field, uh, nuclear physics, let's say, and they say, oh, that guy's not a real nuclear physicist. 
he just got that job at the firm. They just, he's probably a high school dropout. And they just <laughs> hired him in this job. So that guy's no good. And then, even if the person didn't get his job through affirmative action, Shelby Steele says, whites look at that person and say, well, he's no good anyway. He couldn't be good because he probably got his job through affirmative action, whether he did or not. And he also makes the argument that black people are harmed by affirmative action because we say, well, we didn't have to be as good. You know, we just got this job because we're black and so on. I think it's absolute nonsense. You know, white people in this country have gotten jobs based on their color of their skin for years. I've never heard of any morose white people going around saying, oh, gee, that's so bad. Do you think, do you think, do you think the white men in the Twin Cities who are presidents of banks are saying, oh, gee, I feel so awful. I just got this job because I'm a white man and everybody knows it. And uh, I'm not, I'm just, they don't do that. They don't do that. This is a specious, foolish argument. It has been around for years. And if you read Mr. Steele's book, it's really revealing. This book, uh, pardon me if I go on, uh, but uh, this guy's become a favorite now. He's the latest favorite to be taken up by the Academy and by the media and so on. So you, if you haven't seen a lot of them, you're going to see a lot of them. His book is a series of personal vignettes from which he draws great truths. There's one vignette, he's shopping. He, he lives in an all-white neighborhood in, this, in suburban San Diego, uh, and he is the only black person in his neighborhood. And he goes shopping at his neighborhood grocery store, and he sees this other black woman. And this happens several times, and she keeps avoiding him. And he says, now she's avoiding me, because if we meet and talk with each other, it will, we will lose our uniqueness as the only one. And so this is endemic, this is representative of what's happened to black America. Our blackness has made us so unique, we're reluctant to shed it or even to share it. One reviewer I said, did he, I, I read said, did he ever imagine that she doesn't like him? <laughs> then he's a kid and he grows up in a, in a town which I think is Gary. It's outside Chicago, I think it's Gary. And he goes in a segregated restaurant, he's a high school kid, a segregated restaurant, and the waitress says, I'm sorry, we don't serve you people. And he feels sorry for her. He feels sorry he has put her in the position of turning him away. He's sorry, you know, it's like, you know, I'm sorry, Mr. Klansman, I didn't know that, you know, your, your rope would be, I mean, this incredible, incredible. <laughs> then, uh, I mean, it's just full of these things, and, and he draws some truths. But I think it's a specious argument. It's an old argument. Uh, he has made it anew. It will be made again. But until you can convince me that the people who have been enjoying advantage in this country for hundreds of years are suffering because of it and are feeling bad because they think other people are suspicious of their qualifications or feeling guilty because they know they just got the job because they were white, Let's look at where Senator Wellstone is for a man. Look at these people who are in there. Now, who are these people? And why are they there? And why aren't others there who don't look like them and act like them? Do you think these members of the Senate are going around saying, oh, geez, I saw my maid today was joking at me because uh, she knows I'm not qualified to be here. Of course not. They're glad to have the advantage and glad to take it and glad to claim it and are fighting to keep it. So. It's absolute nonsense and uh, makes no sense. Yes, sir. The question I ask if I comment about the administration's pronouncements about the illegality of special scholarships for uh, students of color. Um, first, I ought to say as a general proposition, I think scholarships ought generally to be need-based uh, rather than race-based. Uh, but I think the law permits uh, private monies to be used for particular purposes, uh, scholarships for the sons of engineers, uh, scholarships for the daughters of uh, ice skaters, uh, whatever, you know, that uh, there can be no restriction too narrow or too restrictive when private monies are involved. Uh, I wonder why this humble undersecretary in the Department of Education was allowed to make this rather wide sweeping policy. Um, and I wonder why he was so eager to make it uh, but as a general proposition, I think scholarships ought to be need-based as opposed to race-based. Scholarships offered by the university, public monies, ought to be need-based as opposed to race-based as a general proposition. 
Yes, sir. Well, all I've heard about, the uh, question asked if I ever heard of Milwaukee Alderman Michael McGee, I, all I've heard about him is his newspaper accounts, and I uh, know that you cannot trust what you read in newspapers. I mean, just no, no way. Uh, so I'd hesitate to draw any conclusions about him. Uh, I, I just don't know enough about him to have an uh, opinion about him. He seems to be uh, an aggressive guy, an outspoken guy, uh, but I don't know enough about him to have, to have an opinion about him. Yes? Well, in the last year, we've heard charges made that Dr. King was an adulterer, that he plagiarized his PhD, um, his doctoral thesis, and Carl Rowan, uh, late of uh, Minneapolis, has uh, just written a book in which he makes fuzzy allegations about whether or not Dr. King and the Reverend Ralph Abernathy, both of whom are dead now, so we can't ask them, uh, were... Um, engaged in, were homosexuals. So it's adultery, plagiarism, homosexuality. Um, my feeling is that we, and not just with Martin Luther King, is that we almost know too much about some people. There's some things I don't want to know about some people. And I think in at least a couple of these instances, the revelation is made to attract attention to the revealer as much as it is to shed light on the subject. I just finished reading Carl Rowan's book, and what he says is that John Rooney, who was chairman of the uh, Oversight Committee of the FBI, and this means this guy carried J. Edgar Hoover's water, played uh, a tape to Carl Rowan, and then interpreted the tape for Carl Rowan and said, that's Martin Luther King and Ralph Abernathy, and they're doing homosexual things. Uh, but if you read the book carefully, Rowan sets the meeting at a time when it could not have happened. And of course, Dr. King is dead, Dr. Abernathy is dead, Mr. Rooney is dead. Two other members of the committee who survived, of Rooney's committee who survived, said they'd never had such tapes and never heard such tapes. So here is a, an incident with no witnesses. Similarly, in the account that King spent a, um, an adulterous night on the night before he was killed, um, there's one witness, Ralph Abernathy, who testifies that it is so, another witness, Martin Luther King, who is dead, and two other witnesses who survive who say it is not so. In fact, Reverend Abernathy was so intoxicated that he had to be carried from a sofa and poured into his bed. So we don't know what the truth of these things is. Um, I've always thought that we honor the man for what we have known about him for many, many years. Uh, but if some of you here have some dispute with his PhD thesis, which was written on... Ah. So we're not honoring this guy for being a scholar. We're not... Uh, we don't... We're not honoring this guy for being a scholar. He uh, wrote his PhD. He was a, got his PhD from Boston University. And he wrote his PhD on his kitchen table in Montgomery at a time when he was a new pastor of a church, was active in the NAACP, and the Montgomery bus boycott had broken upon him. So he got up early in the morning and wrote his PhD, and his wife typed it for him. And he left out many footnotes, he quoted without quotation marks, uh, did all kinds of things that scholars and uh, that students are not supposed to do. But we don't honor him for that. We honor him for his bravery, for his courage, for his vision, and for his voice, and for his ability, not unique with him, but almost unique, to speak to audiences of the poor and the dispossessed and strike a responsive chord, and then to go to New York City and speak at Riverside Church and make the same res get the same response. And we, are, we honor him most of all for his courage, his incredible courage, to risk his life, to face death time and time and time again. Uh, so I've just, uh, in the last uh, several years, become a history teacher. So I'm real interested in these little stories. I love these little stories, you know, that you hear about this, because my students like them. That's what, you know, makes history real, if you can tell them that, you know, Rosa Parks was one of three women arrested in Montgomery that year. That the first was a woman named, a young teenage girl named Claudette Colvin, who was arrested on the bus. And the older people in Montgomery said, oh, we got a case now. We can start a boycott. We can start a movement. This young, sweet young thing has been arrested. 
Claudette Colvin, so we can do it now. But then they discovered that when Claudette Colvin was arrested, she cursed the bus driver. I don't know what she called him, but she cursed the bus driver. And then they discovered she was pregnant and she's not married. So they said, oh, this can't have this. We can't have this cursing, pregnant, unwed teenager <laughs> representing, representing Black Montgomery. So it didn't matter that she had been arrested on the bus in the same circumstances as Mrs. Parks. She didn't measure up, so she didn't do. And then another woman whose name I think is Margaret Jackson was arrested. And the people said, oh boy, this is it now. We got one now because this was constant, this harassment on the bus. I'll bet there's not a black adult living in Montgomery in 1955 who didn't know someone or who themselves had not been insulted on the bus in Montgomery. You know how it worked, the bus would pull along, you'd go up to the front, you'd buy your ticket, you'd get off the bus and go in the back door, and many times the bus would pull away. And then they had these seats reserved, white sat from the front back, black sat from the back forward, and sometimes, if all the black seats were filled and all the white seats were empty and you were black, you had to stand up while the bus pulled along. In black neighborhoods, the bus stopped at every other block. In white neighborhoods, it stopped at every block, but black people were 70% of the bus ridership. And they knew that if they could stay off the bus, they could teach this bus coming. So anyway, this woman, Margaret Jackson, gets elected, uh, arrested, and they say, boy, this is, this is it. Another woman abused on the bus, this is a case. And then they find out that Miss Jackson's father is an alcoholic and she lives in abject poverty and that she's not representative of the best face of the black community of Montgomery and so her indignity is thrown away. Luckily, Rosa Parks came along <laughs> or these buses might yet be segregated. So I like telling these uh, little anecdotes because I think it humanizes these people. We tend to to you know, mythologize these people. These are ordinary women and men, just like you, who did extraordinary things at an extraordinary time and moment. And there is no reason why you cannot do the same. Do you have uh, one or two more? Well, I, I look at uh, Malcolm X and see him going through uh, uh, a period of growth in his life where the Malcolm X shot at the Audubon Ballroom in Harlem is very different from the Malcolm X who was a pimp and a hustler and a thief and a burglar, uh, very different. So I see this man in some transition and changing and growing and developing a larger, broader outlook on life, a deepening sense of his religion and, and uh, its truly non-racial nature. Uh, so I look upon him and I say, this is an admirable figure. This is someone to be looked up to and uh, followed. Uh, this is surely uh, one of the towering figures of our, of our time. And this is someone whose life, fr from whom uh, you can learn a great deal from his life, how he lifted himself from this degradation of prison and crime and, and drugs and pulled himself up. I asked Louis Farrakhan once if he remembers when he first saw Malcolm X. And you know, Louis Farrakhan used to be a nightclub singer. He sang, had his great song, hit record, Listen, My Children, and I Will Tell How the White Man's Heaven is a Black Man's Hell. He was a uh, calypso singer, you know, sort of a short Harry Belafonte. Um, and he was very popular. He's a nightclub singer in Boston. And he told me he came out of this nightclub one morning, about three o'clock in the morning, and he heard some commotion down there, and, uh, and he said, what's that? And somebody said, that's Big Red. That was Malcolm X's nickname, Big Red. And he said, I looked, he said, and he had on tan shoes, tan socks, tan pants, tan shirt, tan tie, tan jacket, and a tan tam. So I said, whew. Anyway, then I look at Louis Farrakhan and he, I see someone different than Malcolm X. As you said, these are not the same people, they're very different. And I um, see a man who is an anti-Semite. I see a man who has a worldview that's radically at variance, I think, with that of most of the people who admire him. Uh, most of the people who admire him, I, I don't believe, think that white people are the result of a flawed scientific experience, experiment by an evil scientist. Most don't believe that the pig is a mutation of the rat and the cat and the dog. 
So he has a world, and most don't believe that, uh, that women ought to be uh, subordinated to the interest of men. Most don't believe that, I don't think. And so he has a worldview and a vision of things that doesn't square with my worldview and my vision. And so I don't think uh, he's the person I would want to emulate and follow. Having said all that, he's an interesting person and he represents a, a wing, not the, not the stream, a wing of nationalism in black America that existed long before uh, Louis Farrakhan came along and will exist after Louis Farrakhan came along. It has risen and fallen in black America, but it is ever present, it is always there, it is a strong, vibrant, hopeful strain. And uh, he is in it and part of it, he is certainly not all of it. And so it's important to know him and to know what he stands for and where he comes from and uh, where he may go. Do you have one last? Yes. Well, it's clear that uh, the question is, can I comment on the, uh, and let me paraphrase it if I may, on the uh, theory that quite often inferiority and superiority are part of the makeup of group dynamics. One group feels superior and must demonize the other. It is inferior in order to justify what it has done. And can this in some way be applied to what's happening in the Persian Gulf? Of course it can. Uh, we demonize the Arab population for many, many years. And now, of course, the leader of our opposition is a Hitler. This man has become a Hitler. He was our buddy two years ago. What a transformation. Incredible, isn't this? Wow, overnight. From helpmate to Hitler. Incredible. Uh, so sure, and we've tended to do this throughout uh, our, all our relationships with the Arab world. We have demonized the people. We have demonized their religion. Uh, and one of the arguments uh, we've made, uh, some people make against uh, war is that the war will further enrage these demons and uh, our own stock will fall considerably in this area. But this is an old story, that you can't fight people unless you hate them and dislike them and uh, make them less than you are, not human as you are. Um, we've just seen a poll that says 78% of white Americans uh, from a sample of uh, 547, uh, believes that uh, black Americans are more prone to violence, more uh, likely to like to live on welfare, uh, and less patriotic than white Americans. Uh, that's a necessary part of the demonology, that unless you can develop this demonology uh, about other people, uh, then you can't adopt a superior attitude toward them. You see it in human relationships, you see it in international relationships, uh, it's a necessary component to despising and disliking them and treating them badly. Thank you all very much.